Let everybody grab their drink and grab a seat. Thank you very much for coming. Um, my name is John Kilfoyle. I'm one of the uh, creators and producers of Bad Talks, along with uh, Paul and Linda from Kochman Wright and Hague. Um, and we're so glad that you took some time out of your week to come here and join us tonight. Um, it seems like a pretty, pretty hot topic that people are very, very interested in. And uh, we're very, very glad that you're here, and we're very glad that um, this topic was uh, brought to our attention and, and sort of uh, the, the catalyst um, is, uh, is BZ Honan over in the corner. And she, uh, she is a, a Bad Talks loyalist. She comes to a lot of our talks, which we're very grateful for. Um, and, and so really what I'm up here to tell you is that this is a community effort. We created Bad Talks with the intention of uh, creating a community to get together four times a year and talk about ideas that affect all of us in our, in our work environments. Um, we've assembled an incredible panel for you tonight. Um, this is one of our largest crowds. Um, so enjoy the talk, please participate. Um, and if you have any ideas for a future talk, um, this is a very uh, self-sustaining model. We need topics to kind of keep furthering the conversation. Chances are, if it's an issue for you, it's an issue for so many people in this room. So don't be afraid to uh, visit badtalks.com and uh, contribute a topic. And uh, let's get this going. Kyle. Thank you, John. Um, I probably don't need this since I'm already mic'd, come to think of it. But we'll use this later for the question and answer period. Um, my name is Kyle Hepner. I'm the editor of New England Home Magazine. I uh, was very grateful to be asked when we first started the Bad Talks idea by Paul and Linda and John from United Marble and Kochman Wright and Haig uh, to be part of this, uh, which was originally their initiative. Uh, but it was wonderful for us at New England Home because we spend a lot of time talking the talk and it really gave us a chance to walk the walk because we, dis we bill ourselves as being as much as possible real partners in the design and custom construction industry. Um, and nights like this kind of give us a chance. It's not our thing, it's not a marketing thing for the magazine, it's not an event for everybody, it's really the nuts and bolts and the very core of our industry that we're getting together. And so I'm really quite honored and happy to be able to serve in this way. Um, as John said, we think tonight's topic is clearly something that interests a lot of people because no matter what kind of firm you have, if you're a designer, if you're an architect, if you are a builder, if you are in one of the many trades and showrooms who support those things, you all have personnel, you all have hiring things, you all have employment and kind of long-term strategic, how do I build my firm and what are the people who make us what we are? And tonight's topic, I think, goes directly into that. Hiring, inspiring, training, and retaining the best employees. Uh, to help us with that, we've got a small sampling of people from a number of different aspects of the community also. To my left, we've got Kate Kelly and Matthew Woodward from Hassan & Associates, a wonderful architecture and interiors firm in Boston. Um, They're actually kind of a wonderful case study here because Hassan & Associates is known for having a, a very kind of careful and well thought strategy for finding and hiring employees. And so we have one hirer and one hiree 
who have actually been through that process, who will help talk a little bit about that. And that is for one type of firm, which is looking for particularly creative uh, people, in a way. Um, we have Jason Sevenor from Salem Plumbing and Designer Bath, who is actually BZ Honan's boss, who was drafted by her to do this without his knowledge, uh, but has very kindly agreed to do it. <laughs> and will be a wonderful, um, who also, you know, is obviously involved in our um, world as a supplier for many of you and a wonderful design resource for many of the people in this room, I think, are very familiar with their, their offerings. Um, and it's also, in some ways, a very different kind of company from Hassin and Associates. And so we'll offer a related but different perspective. Um, and we also, <coughs> excuse me, have Jennifer Tebow, who is a human resources consultant here in the Boston area from a company called Strategic HR, excuse me, Strategic HR Solutions. Um, and Jennifer is obviously in a way kind of our get the kind of larger perspective expert uh, because Jennifer deals with industries that are quite different from ours but also deals in great depth with the nuts and bolts of the hiring process and looking for people and keeping them. Um, and so this is sort of the microcosm of what we got to deal with, but I also think that this particular session is going to be very participatory, uh, and I hope that it will, because I know all of you who represent a lot of very different sizes and types of firms will each have your own wants and needs and areas where you have questions or would like to share some information with your peers. Uh, so I will keep in mind, and I'm going on way too long, but these bad talk sessions are not just listen to the people up front and then chat a little bit at the end, but we actually encourage questions and interaction from everybody here all the way through. Uh, so in this wonderful intimate space we've got in the 342 Designer Lounge, uh, which has been very nicely lent to us by the Boston Design Center as a sponsor, um, you know, it's perfect for the back and forth. So don't hesitate to catch my eye or raise your hand or speak up. Um, for the purposes of the video which is being taken tonight, we will ask uh, Linda or somebody, John, to hold on to this and we've got a question or want to make a, a, uh, a comment, grab John's eye and he'll bring you the microphone to make that a little bit easier. That being said, um, I think we should just go ahead and jump in. Um, I will note that the title we came up with tonight is arguably not quite in the right order depending on how you look at it uh, because the hiring clearly comes first. Chances are there is some training that happens after that, although we all know that training can be a lifelong thing and so that may keep going. We hope the inspiration starts soon after the hiring, but that also goes on forever and we hope the retaining works until those inevitable times when there are times when people do need or want to move on. Uh, so we will try to cover all of those um, in a logical order tonight. Uh, but just to get things rolling, I'd love to talk with Kate and Matthew a little bit about your experience of kind of where Hassin and Associates, what you're looking for, where you go to find it. Uh, and then after that's done, I'll ask some of you who have quite from like builders and people from quite different companies, kind of your take on that also. Sure. So Thank you. Run Thank with you it. for having us. Um, uh, you know, basically where we where we go and try to find talent and find people really depends on what level we're looking for. So for interns and 
um, beginner level, certainly the wonderful schools that we have at our fingertips here in Boston. Um, and and uh, you know, we try to make sure that we're involved in those communities by um, uh, getting there for being guest crits and uh, thesis advisor and um, you know, exit interviews. Um, and, uh, but for, for higher uh, level, um, we uh, will reach out to like the BSA and local, um, local organizations, but a lot of times it's, uh, it's word of mouth and just having really, um, you know, going to these kind of events, um, talking and contacts. So a lot of, uh, you know, David will always put feelers out and we kind of reach out and, and also try to find people that way as, as well. Yeah. Well, Matthew, how did you get hooked up with HIV? I can attest to that. I was actually at a portfolio review, and I met uh, Kate's associate, Jen, and she was there. Hasin had just closed the books on applicants, and um, I was just about a week shy. And they said, please come in, please come in, please come in tomorrow. Um, and I did. And I think so much of that was a conversation to have during an interview process as opposed to being interviewed. Of course, we looked at the portfolio, but I think it was a cultural fit, and they were looking for people that had um, interesting backgrounds as well as design abilities. Um, because I think one thing that you alluded to a little bit is about our culture, and we can extend upon that a little bit too. But I think um, that was really so much that I was looking for. Got uh, a hot one. Got a hot one. Um, what I was looking for when I first walked in the door is a place where I could feel really comfortable as a designer to try new things, and it felt like a really great fit. And that's, you know, a little bit of what we can attest to today in that we have um, what I guess we'd call a boutique experience, not just in how we work, but also how we manage our employees. It's really um, not as well-defined as maybe we talk about as when we get into an HR conversation, um, and there are certainly challenges that come with that, too. Well, Jason, how does this uh, match your experience at Salem Plumbing, or how is it different? I think our greatest success has come from referrals. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's a warm lead. It's, you can get references and referrals, but when you really have someone that knows that contact, it's, it's really, they seem to be the most effective for us. And, and the process really for us has just become, we talk about culture, and our process really starts with, is it a cultural fit? And I think that's where we've had the most success is identifying first, you know, are, are they our kind of people? And then if so, then we di start digging in and we dig deeper. And that's, that's worked really, really well. We've worked with placement companies and that's, we've had moderate success. We've done Craigslist, we've done all, all the monsters and, the, and we've had little success with that. I mean, we've probably interviewed hundreds of candidates over the last several, you know, many years, but probably with very little success when you compare it to the number of hires from the warm referral network that we have in our, in our organization. How many uh, builders do we have in the audience tonight? Okay, that's a good chunk. You guys, I suspect, are probably often looking to hire in some ways a broader range of different kinds of employees than some of the other people given that you've got, you know, carpenters, you've got project managers, you've got, you know, HR and PR people and stuff like that. Are there, what are some of the things that you're looking to find out more about or learn tonight if somebody wants to? I, I think for me it's different sources. 
too late. Uh, I was gonna say one thing I forgot to mention is um, certainly social media too. When, when, we're, we, when we are putting postings out, we're always putting it on you know, LinkedIn through a few of our accounts and, and our Facebook page, I did forget to mention that. That's, that's a good thing. Well Jennifer, maybe this is a good place for you to weigh in. I mean, what is your experience and what, is your, what are your recommendations for people who are looking sort of especially in kind of like general searches versus very specific searches for like a lead carpenter or something like that are there obviously much of it is related directly to the experience level that you're looking for and um, you know if you want someone who can just walk into the door and fill a role versus someone that you're gonna have to train a lot a person you're looking to train a lot that's what you're gonna get from monster that's what you're gonna get from Craigslist that's what you're gonna get from indeed you have to be actively, aggressively recruiting people in the field that you want in. You need to be going to events, you need to be putting your name out there, you need to be utilizing the people on your team, the referral process, because that's the best way. People want to hear from those that are in your company. They want to hear, wow, this is a great place to work and you should join it because they're going to trust that individual more so than they would the hiring manager that they're going to be meeting. So use your employees, get out there, get your name involved in as many trade specific areas that you can. I have one thing to add if I can. One thing that's been helpful for us to encourage our employees. Excuse me. It's really hard to hear all of you back here. I'll try to speak up, Paul. Tell me, tell me if it's any better. Um, what I was going to say, what's been beneficial for us is that when it comes to incentivizing employees to get the name out, to let the people know that you're hiring, is we do a monetary incentive. So we'll give people $250 upon bringing somebody on board, and then I think it's six months later we'll give them an additional $250 if they stay. And that's that's motivating, believe it or not. That's, that's helped fight that fight. It's been good for us. Um, anybody in the audience want to share some venues or things? I just um, I wanted to ask. Sorry. Hi. Um, none of this really concerns me because I'm a one person operation. <laughs> but I'm very curious. And, and uh, the, what struck me at the beginning is both you fellows talked about a cultural fit and I'm, I'd like to hear you expand on that a little bit and maybe give an example of a fit and a not fit. Yeah, I, it's funny that Paul's here uh, because Thanks. Paul actually worked on my house with my husband in Cambridge. Um, we went to survive a fire um, and I had a completely different career at that time. Um, and I knew that I wanted to have a left brain, right brain balance. I was doing um, a, a buying job that was mostly accounting more than anything, which is actually something Kate and I have in common. Um, and then in working with Paul on our home that we were renovating in Cambridge, I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. This is something I really enjoy doing. And believe it or not, Paul, that's why I went back to school and got my master's. Um, and for me, I know this sounds funny, but what's your prerequisite for a job where you feel comfortable? And I'm not joking when I said that I wanted a job where I could wear jeans every day. 
And that wasn't about a fashion statement. It was about being comfortable where you work, being with a certain type of people where you work, feeling free to really get dirty and contribute and put your ideas out there. And I feel like at the firm that I've chosen to work at in particular, um, which also chose me, um, the fit was right. It allowed me to do that. It was small enough, um, and I knew that I was going to have a lot of responsibility really quickly as opposed to feeling like working for a, a different firm that might be better for someone else where you feel like a really tiny part in a bigger machine. So that, for me, was just an instance of fit. And, and our culture uh, flows through that kind of idea in a lot of ways. You get a lot of responsibility right away, but we also have a lot of fun and we have a lot of reasons to go out and celebrate regularly. And we go whitewater rafting every year. And those things are also a really important cultural fit as well that I was looking for. Well, that actually brings up, I think, the question for everybody up here, uh, as well as in the audience, is like, do you find yourself, or should you find yourself, thinking about your company's way of doing business and your culture as and tuning it in a way that will specifically attract the kinds of people you need and want? I, my experience is your company is your identity. Your culture is your identity. I wouldn't necessarily change the identity of the company in order to attract candidates because you're changing who you are. I would stick to what you are, identify what separates you from other organizations, and attract the type of people who want to be a part of that. I, I can speak a little bit to that. I, I know, I think our success in the past, today, and, and, and our, to secure our future is our culture, and that's that we're a family business. So we're third, I'm third generation. My grandfather started the company in 1945. This is 70 years. And I had a great mentor in my father. And I think the feeling that you get, that I hope that you get when you walk through our doors is one of a welcoming type atmosphere that, that is very different today. And we're, you know, whether or not it's holding the door for someone, offering them coffee, walking them to an associate, wel saying welcome, we're excited, glad to have you. I mean, family is what, what it's all about for us. I worked with my sister, I worked with my aunt for a long time. And, and I think when you have associates that, when you're hiring based on creating an atmosphere that's a welcoming family type atmosphere, <coughs> some people that's important too, and some people it's, you know, it's actually less important. It, um, and you can feel that. And when you talk about, and some people are attracted to it and some people aren't, but I think that's been a huge reason for our success because the way we treat our employees as family, I think that's how they treat our customers. And it, it becomes this whole cultural phenomenon in our business where that's just the mood, that's the environment. So. Well, Jennifer, a related thing then that comes to my mind in coming through this, sort of how do you have particular thoughts or recommendations about how you kind of trade off or balance this need for cultural fit, somebody who feels good for the company itself and the people who work there versus the need for a specific skill set? And do you value one above the other? How do you kind of make that determination? I would value them equally because I think we've all experienced it sometime or another. You get someone in who isn't a fit and then they're actively working against what you're trying to do. And it can be very damaging for your team. Um, it can be very damaging for your clients. So I would 
hold it to equal importance. In fact, I often recommend during the interview process having somebody who's your ambassador, somebody who epitomizes what your culture is, doing that initial screening interview just to get the feel for how this individual is. And then once you have that opportunity to make sure they are that fit, then talk about the experience. And do they have the experience you need to fulfill the job? Well, something for the uh, designers and architects in the crowd. I mean, are there special challenges to finding and hiring creative people that are different from, say, hiring you know, a carpenter or a project manager or something like that? Um, do any of our designers have? Well, I'm not an architect or designer, but I'm in, a, I'm in the home technology business with auto video, and our challenge, particularly the last two or three years, is that we need to add people. But you don't have the time when business is pretty good and pretty active, and we have technicians, people that they need experience, and we, we, we just don't have the, the resources to do the proper training from ground zero. So that's the challenge when you're talking about a specialty area and trying to find people. So, I, you know, what Jason's saying about, you know, referrals. So we look at industry, you know, we call them partners, whatever. They're not competitors, but partners. But that's the challenge, and I don't know if anybody has a comment on that, trying to find people. And many times we'll find somebody, and they're out of, uh, they're not even in New England, and we're not necessarily looking at relocating. You know, back in the days of the big corporate world, you could relocate people, but now when you're you know, a smaller company, that's not the primary way you want to get people to come into your company. Anybody? I think when it comes to training, training's always going to be a challenge. No one ever has the time, but you always have the need. Um, so if you can't find the experience, you're just going to have to understand that the training is necessary and hope that the investment is going to be there in the long term, that you're finding that long-term technician that's going to stick around. And so if you invest in that initial part of it, yes, it's time consuming and it's difficult, but you'll have a long-term employee that's loyal to you. I don't know how applicable this is, but we hiring from within for us has also been very positive and it also, there's less of a learning curve because maybe they're a receptionist or maybe they were in the warehouse and we're giving them a promotion, but they understand the bones of our business. We've established that they have the culture that's important to us. And so bringing them up to the next level is less cumbersome and less time consuming. And often, again, we know them, so they're more likely to be successful. So hiring from within has been a, a huge, um, just a great positive. It's also a, it's a great example to set. It's a reward. Your people appreciate it. You empower them. It's, it's so positive. So anytime Hiring from within is, is great. I know it's not always possible with some of these smaller firms, but when you can, it's great. Yeah. Well, just when we actually, when we had our uh, 
conference call last week to discuss this session a little bit, you said something related to that that I think might be good for when you do have an outside candidate, but it becomes the equivalent of kind of putting them from within. Because mm -hmm. you had mentioned that when you have candidates, you often don't just ask for a checklist of credentials or skills but you will actively sort of give them a challenge or a problem and ask them to put themselves in the place of somebody who's already with your company. Yeah, we ask for experiences. So a lot of our interview process, it used to be something like, tell me about uh, your greatest <laughs> trait, or tell me, do you find yourself good when under stress? That used to be our old process. Now, we're asking for a lot more examples. So tell me about a time when you, you know, did this, or tell me about a time when you experienced this, and how did you get out of that jam? And so asking for specific examples has really helped us get, find, discover the truth about a lot of these candidates. So asking for examples has, been a, has, has turned into a, a very large part of our interview process. Um, well, I mean, there's a truism that the interview works both ways. Because you're interviewing the candidate, and the candidate theoretically should be interviewing you. Uh, but I suspect many of us know from having been interviewees, sometimes you're just so hot on getting whatever job you can, you may not take your responsibility seriously for really scoping out the company that you're about to yoke your life to. Um, I mean, do any of you all, or does anybody in the audience, do you have ways of making sure that the people you're interviewing are in fact finding out enough about your company so that they can know that it's a good fit also? Or do you just sort of, is that an assumption that's in the background? Well, I mean, I know that we'll always ask um, how they you know, came, about, came across us, you know, what interested them in H&A. precedes you so they sort of already know your ability based on your resume and what you're presenting in advance of them seeing you because they wouldn't have called you for an interview without having seen your portfolio at least in you know speaking in terms of design um, so I remember it being very conversationally driven in more that it, it was sort of and I think I was being tested a little bit um, well, did you consider using this? And why did you use this? And oh, that reminds me of the designer who did this other thing. And just to understand what sort of level of dialogue we'd be able to be communicating on as peers. Um, and I remember leaving the office, getting in the elevator, and I made post-it notes of a couple designers and different ideas that were thrown at me that I didn't know in the interview. Uh, and I went home and looked at all of them. And I thought, oh, these are really cool precedents. And I would want to work with these people, too. Um, but to your question also about how much are you interviewing as an interviewee, I asked point blank, where would I be in a year? Where would I be in two years? And I think that's important to ask those questions because you should know, but also because I think that they probably want to hire people who want to know the answers to those questions. Anybody else? Um, anybody in the audience? You've all been rather quiet so far. Do you have other pros prospecting and interviewing thoughts or experiences you'd like to share that have come to mind during any of this? 
This is probably a little different than you expected. Uh, I, I worked for several years for an architect in Rome, Italy, who was an American. His name's Spiro Daltus. Uh, he had a big firm in Italy. And his favorite story was when he went for an interview with Aero Saarinen, the architect. He said he was scared out of his mind. He had his portfolio. He'd done all his homework. He, we all know who Aero Saarinen was. He walked in and was escorted into Arrow's office. And there he sat, the kind of a, a god in architecture at the time. And Saarinen took a sheet of paper and passed it over to him and said, draw a horse for me. A horse. A horse. <laughs> I don't think Sparrow ever recovered. It was a kind of a test in A, drawing, B, perception, and see reacting to something that was totally unexpected. He got the job, it worked, but kind of an interesting take on what a job interview would be with an architect. We'll try that next time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't had the guts to try it in my own firm. Sooner or later, I'll try it. Well, that, that actually is a good question, I think. It's like, especially Jennifer, I mean, what would somebody be trying to learn from that? And how effective is it like to be to do that kind of thing? I had a former director that I worked with, and he loved making candidates feel uncomfortable. To the point, as an HR person, I thought it was a nightmare. I was prepping the candidates on our way to his office because I knew he was going to ask them questions unrelated to the job. He was going to put them on the spot, ask them about their college thesis. I mean, he would pressure them. He would come up with random scenarios that would never happen just to see how this person handled it. And when I confronted him about it, he said, the reality is what I put them through is nothing compared to what our guest or client is gonna put them through. So I need to see how they're gonna handle it. And if they can handle me, they can handle that. And so it was this, it, it was his way to see how they handle pressure. So offbeat things, as long as they do relate to some aspect of what's necessary for the job, can be effective, you think? Yes. But not just being weird for the sake no. of being weird. No. Very cool. Um, well, then why don't we, uh, given that time is moving along, why don't we move along and say, okay, you have found what you think is the perfect candidate. You have brought them in. They are now part of your family. How do you make them fit in as quickly and as best they can for both their sake and the company's sake. Anybody who wants to run with that? I think during our call we talked a little bit about feedback and the necessary evil that feedback can be. Um, and also the importance of doing it on time. We talked a little bit about reviews and then um, reviews are a great process and I think that they have a bad reputation. I think you should really look forward to your, your review. That's a geeky answer, I know, but I really do feel like you should. It's a great opportunity to talk about what you want to do next and what you did well and what you could work on. Um, and if your reviews get moved out just because they do, because we're busy people, um, that's not a great feeling. So we talked a little bit about the importance of that and also how we need to, what was the statistic? 90% uh, of our time is spent on 10% of our employees. Which are usually the bad, problems. The problem employees. Um, so I, I think that that's interesting to keep in mind is that you know even if you're doing a good job, you want someone to tell you that. Right, and in fact, Jennifer, 
during that same call, that 90-10 proportion you suggested should actually be the other way around. Mm -hmm. And you should be talking to your great people and telling them they're great. And if you have a problem, deal with it, deal with it quickly and effectively, because it's not worth your time. Your great people are worth your time. And I, I think to, the, the communication piece, I think, is key. And being in a family business, I think that's been my huge focus for this, for in the past, but this coming year especially is empowering employees and letting them know it's okay to talk about things that make them uncomfortable or that whatever they want to talk about. So if, if that's taking your associate out to lunch and giving them a safe environment to talk to you, it's amazing what you can learn at lunch outside the office and when you take the time to take somebody out. They will tell you things that they will never tell you inside the office. And I don't do this enough because it, you know, you just get busy and that's, it's hard. And it's hard to take the time to get out of the office, take an hour and a half lunch and, and but the, the pieces of information you can come back, take away from that are, are so, so pivotal. Um, Paul, can you hear me all right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So anyways, I think the communication piece is, is so important and you know, making people feel comfortable to talk to you about stuff because in the end everything goes smoother nothing festers nothing gets ugly grows just let it out right so if your people feel comfortable doing that you're so much more successful it's such a better environment it's a happier place and inevitably a more successful place yeah. and I, I think an important point is you can't wait for people to come to you you need to actively give them the opportunity give them the opportunity yeah. or go out and solicit thoughts just such a big thing and, and giving them the opportunity. I know like and it comes back to the culture but um, just you know having opportunities to have um, like you were mentioning the rafting trip and we go out on retreats and have um, you know wine and cheese when we can on Fridays and um, really um, building from within because when your employees are happy then in turn you're gonna have you're gonna have a successful business. Go for it. Right. Do you do that in your company? How do you tell, tell, give us some examples of kind of your way um, well, of doing that. We have a position description. And within that, within that position description, it says, here's how you're going to be measured. Here's what success looks like. And then we have an onboarding plan that says, in the first month, um, uh, but you made him use it. You have to. <laughs> Remember to give the kudos as opposed to the you're doing this wrong. I, I, you know, we had a meeting today in our company, and one of the guys was saying, "Well, I one of our lead carpenters was doing a really good job with this," and I said, "Did you tell him that?" He said, "Well, no, I haven't." I think that's a really important key to building the culture of your company. Yeah, 
And I think related to that, and uh, some of our panel may want to speak to that, I think it's also important to help especially new people give them a sense of the overall kind of goals and culture of the company and sort of what their contribution to that is now and can be in the future. Would the success for what we do as designers is typically measured at project completion and via happy clients, which unfortunately doesn't always time out with when you need it as an employee or as a designer. So not that we have all the answers, but that's one of the biggest challenges, at least in a creative industry, is that there aren't really always that, those goalposts for check-ins for success. And as an employee, you can feel insecure at times based on that, especially in, in a creative industry. That's absolutely one of the biggest challenges of what we do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually, I have a question, not only for our, our panel, but for everybody here. I mean, I, I think we've talked a little bit about the utter necessity of communication and the fact that that is a permanent need and it doesn't change or go away. Um, do you find that the nature of what you're communicating or what you're, how you're interacting with people changes over time from what you would call the onboarding process through into when they've become more integral to the team and it really becomes more of a developmental process of where are these people going within your organization? How can they develop their own kind of self-realization? How does that evolve in your experience? For me, I, I feel like once we get a, we onboard them and they go through the training process, in the beginning, our associates are doing a lot of the talking. So we're training, we're putting them through the ringer and they're shadowing and we're explaining. <laughs> But after a little bit, we start doing less talking and we start listening more. And what's cool about new associates is they see it, your business from a different way. So when you start asking them questions about, tell us about how your process was, how was the last three months, how was the last six months, you can actually learn from them. So then you start listening more. So as we transition from talking to listening, it's a completely different dynamic and all of a sudden they're become, becoming contributors to your business and they're suggesting things, and, and that's really neat. That's really cool when it, when it turns from talking to listening. Yeah. Matthew, you had mentioned that for you, being given the chance to take risks was kind of an important growth aspect. Yeah, I mean, it was always about asking for more responsibility for me personally, um, just because I, unless, it, unless I'm sweating a little bit, it, you know, it, it doesn't feel fully real for me personally, and so I always try and take on more and more and more. Um, but also, you have to keep in mind that you were hired for a very specific role, too. So you have to fit that in. And in a lot of ways, that means working longer days, because I had to prove that I had the ability to do all the things for which I was hired. But then I would stay late and say, oh, but I got this started. And you know, oh, we weren't expecting you to do that. Oh, I'd like to do more of that. And that comes back to Kate's point about communication, is you really have to ask for the, that responsibility and those opportunities. Um, because I think in life generally, and also in design, is the pith of learning is from making mistakes. So you have to set up your business in a way that allows you to make mistakes, but they're, the, the client will never know about them and they don't go so far, because of course, you have someone who looks at your work before it goes out the door. But it's the opportunity to at least try it for the first time, and then the second time, and then eventually that's part of your job responsibility. We don't, in our firm, have a lot of attrition, so you really have to carve out a role for yourself if you don't want to be where you came in when you first put your foot in the door two and a half years ago, as the case may be for me. Right. Well, I do notice that a lot of, I think, what we've said so far 
is specifically applicable to firms that may have eight or 10 or 20 employees or sometimes larger. Uh, but I know that some of our audience will be interior designers or landscape designers or possibly even architects who are working in like a two or three person company. Um, is there anything here that has not resonated with you or do you have thoughts or needs that aren't covered by any of the things that we've said because you're working in such a tiny personal sort of way? curious if anyone has considered or done a trial period for potential candidates to see if it's a good match for, for both the employer and employee. Um, yeah, I can, I can speak to that a little bit. Uh, we, we, we do sometimes do that where there's, there is, um, you know, a trial where we say, we, you know, w uh, the, the firm needs, you know, we're specific about what we're looking for. Um, we have this new project and it's probably going to be about a six month and, you know, if it is, um, a good situation for both parties, uh, us and um, that employee, then uh, we've, we've done that quite a bit. And knowing in the back of our mind uh, that, you know, if this works out, then of course we can go further. Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, if, if things work out really well with an intern, we have interns always in the office. Um, and many of them have uh, been hired in state. So. Um, uh, when speaking of small firms, like two or three people, one thing I've noticed that's a real problem, maybe you can answer, a real challenge, is when it's one person and the clients want to see that person and say designer X. And it's very difficult, how do you find someone that can take, almost take your place, that you can expand your company because that person's a leader too. You can trust that person to, to expand who you are so you don't have to be facing retirement with no one to give your firm to. I mean, I can speak a little bit to that. Um, I'm not facing retirement anytime soon, but, um, but when we're working together, we have very much of um, you know, a team-oriented firm. And so uh, I think when we always, we always use the word we to clients. So clients are um, you know, confident that they're having a lot of eyes you know, on their projects, um, a lot of talent on their projects. Um, but uh, you know, using that we, it represents us. Whether you're meeting with me or you're meeting with Matthew, um, you're getting the benefit of H&A behind your, your project. So we kind of address it that way you know, um, because uh, you know, everyone is representing H&A. And as I started to work a bit more with project managing, we would have Kate come to early preliminary schematic client meetings um, at a recent university, for instance. And at a recent university, we were doing a project kickoff with a client. And then Kate continues to be CC'd on all of those emails. And she's always involved in all the communication. And she, you know, it's, it's no offense taken by me if Kate chimes in with something or adds to something, because I think the client sees the benefit of her experience as well. So they, they don't take that as that. They know that Kate's guiding it, but that I'm also growing. And we also right. phrase that to the client. They understand that I, it, this is an opportunity for me, too. And they see my enthusiasm, hopefully. So people don't take, no, I want to see Dave. No, you know, um, he's, uh, I think he's mindful of that. I mean, 
uh, if you're a smart, smart person, you're, you're knowing that, that, that clients are thinking about that. So he does show his face at appropriate times. And he is very, actually, for, for how busy we are, I think we have close to 50 active projects. He is remarkable. He, he really does know what's going on in every single project. Um, but no, we, we've really never had uh, a client say that because I think he's, he's involved enough and they, they feel taken care of. Yeah. I just want to comment on that a little bit because we tried that, um, exactly what you were saying, and it didn't work. So um, we tried to hire other designers and so on and so forth, and they, absolutely not. It wasn't working. I had a client once who said to me, um, they want you, period. They're coming in to see you, they want you. So we had to figure out a way to, to make that work. So what we decided to do is then change our strategy, and we had to hire strategic people to assist, so mm -hmm. executive assistants who then mm -hmm. communicate. But still through that, as you were talking about David, um, we would have to, it would be me, I had to, there are times we call touching the client, you have to touch the client so they feel as if you are still taking care of them constantly, but they are mostly talking to your exec after you've sort of let go of it and it's, it's in the process. We call it touching the client, so we have to be real strategic about that. But it does not work. That did not work for us at all. So I just wanted to mention that. I think you know. I think the way it's worked for us is, um, you know, from David down to me, down to you know Matthew. I think that we um, David is always supporting you know us building a stronger relationship with the client. So whether that means taking them out to lunch or. You know, me knowing that when we worked on this project, you know, I'm not going to go to that meeting. Actually, I think it's going to be great. Let me know how it goes. Um, I think helping foster that relationship might be beneficial. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, especially when you're a small firm, it's the initial expectation. So like with a larger firm, when a client's going to them, most often they're going to go, well, I'm, I am working with a team in a large firm. But when you're a small office, it's very important to set that expectation that you have a very skilled group of people that you're working with who right. they will be working with. Right. So they're not expecting, they know you're part of it and you're watching it, but that you're not going to be the, the whole thing. And then to train your people to be you. <laughs> you know, what, have the time to watch them as they're growing to make sure that they are conveying what you're hoping in that, which is all a challenge. <laughs> that actually, oh, we've got one more question and then I'll. I'll just add um, to your question, Stephanie, about um, trial periods. We commonly will use a 12-week trial period and establish that right up front so that if the fit does not feel great, you sort of have a gracious way to say the fit isn't perfect for whatever reason. And then speaking to when you do find someone that is a great fit and has a bunch of skills, um, I'm always amazed at how people will try to hold the salary line close to what might be expected. And my approach has always been pay them more. Pay them 20% more than what they would get up the street. And if you've really got someone with talent, realize how important it is. You go back to your 90%, 10% adage, we spent 9% of our time on the 10% worst employees, and we never put the energy into the people that are the superstars. And so you'd be so much better off to just pay them 20 or 30% more than they might get up the street 
and in the end, you'll come out ahead as a business owner. So that's been successful for us. Right. Um, well, I think both of those last two questions are a really good segue in a way because once you have these people in place, uh, Matthew had mentioned that one of his questions, even in his interview, was where will I be here in a year and two years? As a business owner and as the owner, sort of the manager of a business or a creative team, how do you figure out how to work with various kinds of people to find what will help empower them for their own personal satisfaction and growth in the long term? And maybe Jennifer, if you want to jump in on this one a little bit. Yeah, I, we talked about this a bit on the call because I think it's easy to engage someone who's been there six months, a year, year and a half. What about that employee that's been there 10 years, 15 years? That person who's been a carpenter or an installer or whatever position it is, and that's what they started with and that's what they want to be. And they're going to stick to that. That's the person that you really have to work at engaging. And I think Jason brought up a good point about asking questions. Let that person be a technical expert. Let that person provide guidance on the best way to do the job. You know, if you have five carpenters and one of them is outstanding, what is he doing that's so different from everyone else? And learn from him and then utilize his skill set to improve the rest of the team. You're building up his ego, you're helping him feel a part of the bigger picture, and you're keeping him engaged. And yes, he might be a carpenter for the next five years, but that's great. You have a solid carpenter with you. I can speak to that a little bit as well. I think Scott Fisher, who's our operations guy, is here. Um, and something that he's really embraced is cross-training. So he'll take people, whether it's from our warehouse to our counter, so they'll get to experience what it's like to be a counter person. Or if they're a uh, showroom greeter, maybe they'll actually sell a kitchen faucet. And it gives them a taste of a different portion of our business that they may be interested in someday, that they may want to grow into, that they may have you know, their next big opportunity. And it's a safe environment to do so. We're not just throwing them in there. They're handheld. And it, the cross-training piece has been, uh, I think, very successful for us. Actually, I, I know a very wonderful and funny example of that, which is at, uh, in Boston at Winston Flowers, which is, as a lot of people may know, is one of the biggest and most successful floral businesses. There is, I can't remember his name right now, but one of their floral designers has been with them for 30 some odd years, and he actually started in the company as the janitor. And he was cleaning up around that, but he was so fascinated by what was going on, he started asking these questions, and some of the designers started sort of letting him do some stuff. And now he's a mainstay of their staff. And it's like, you never know where some of these people might come from, even from within. Right. Well, Scott was our, you know, worked in our warehouse, and now he's, he's running the business uh, alongside me. So it's, uh, how many years ago was that now, Scott? 18 years ago. So that's pretty cool. Within our firm, um, something similar to that is uh, we're always, you know, David is always um, keeping the line of communication open, and we do a lot of different work, um, you know, high-end residential to multifamily housing to retail to commercial. Um, so I think a way to keep, you know, an employee uh, engaged who's been there for a while is definitely, you know, keeping an eye and making sure that people aren't aren't getting 
um, burnt out in certain roles um, and, and making sure that they have the opportunity to try out a little bit of commercial you know, interiors or you know, um, other parts of the business. I think that's a, that's a big part of it as well. So similar to the cross training, it sounds great. Um, I think another uh, aspect of that that will be very important for a lot of people in, in our industry is, again, back to the sort of very small company thing. Um, that other subset of employees who are not necessarily the ones who are happy being a carpenter for 20 years, um, who are the ones who are kind of hungry and always wanting to grow and advance and kind of move up the ladder, how, what are ways of engaging people like that in small firms where there isn't that much of a ladder to climb? Um, you know, if you've got one principal designer and three assistants and an office manager, how can you keep those assistants involved and happy over a long period of time unless you're willing to let them grow into a partnership of some sort? <laughs> Not an easy question, sorry. Part of this, I think, is identifying what your firm is going to be. And maybe you are the type of firm that is getting fresh out of school, hungry, eager people through the door, and you have to understand that with that will come that wall that they're going to hit and they're going to move on to something else. And if you're willing to make that investment, you're also going to get someone who is just so passionate and driven and hungry for what they're doing. I think that's one side of it. The other side is when you're interviewing, you know, you should be looking for the long-term person. Like, this is our firm. This is how many people we have. This is where you're going to be. I think communication was the point before. Like, this is where you're going to be. Your path to success, it might not get you to a partnership. It will get you here. It will provide you a solid job for the next however many years. But I think you have to be upfront with that when you're going into the process. I think also, I mean, talent rises to the top. I mean, your good people create opportunities for your business. And a lot of times they'll create business segments that you maybe didn't even think of. Case in point for us is BZ Honan. She came to me with a business proposal that I hadn't even really, the direction that she came from, I didn't, I didn't even think of. And, and she's been wildly successful. So. I think when you hire good people and people have the ability to shine and to do what they're passionate about, growth happens, opportunities happen, and then success happens. So. I mean, does Hasim and Associates have a particular? I think um, making sure that, you know, that, that everyone feels um, a part of the goals of the firm, that you feel kind of vested. I think a way to keep people engaged is that um, everyone is excited about the work that's coming in, you know, where the company's going, um, and uh, you know, just keeping keeping everyone a, a part of that. Yeah. Right. Um, any feedback from anybody here with your experiences or thoughts about doing any of this? Uh, small or large firms, kind of like, have any of you ended up taking on partners that you didn't expect just because somebody worked out so incredibly well? Just out of curiosity? No? <laughs> I hate to talk too much, but we were interviewing today for a project developer. Um, and I didn't think that he would be satisfied with that position for, for long. Yeah, he was really interested in a growth potential. So for us, it's where can we take the company to 
appreciate the potential that, em that employees can bring to us. So we decided to hire him in a different position that would have a path that he could uh, expand his potential with. But I think that we as owners or business managers always need to be aware of is that, as Jason is saying, there's more opportunities for us. If we, if we only want to be at one level, we need to be clear about that. But if we're willing to let our companies rise to the potential, then let our employees help us get there. At New England Home, we've actually, in a number of cases over the past 10 and a half years, have ended up kind of creating new positions for people um, based on kind of where they wanted to go. Um, and in fact, a lot of the positions we have are still the same positions, but the people who are in them have actually shifted around. Um, and so we have people doing one aspect of editorial or production, which is quite different from where they started. But we ended up basically rejiggering our masthead based on the individuals we had rather than the other way around. So I think I that's we're taking on new kinds of work too, not just demographic, but also scale of work. Projects that in the past that we might not have considered taking just because sometimes we're not that profitable based on that scale or the amount of time that the client really wants for you because we were used to doing larger scale projects. As our team grows, our workload's grown because we've been able to take on, oh, that might be a three or four month project that we might not have previously done versus doing full architectural and interior scope, which, which is what we're known for doing which is when you're with a client for 15 months minimum. Um, so by taking on some of those roles and smaller projects, um, I've been able to project manage more often and hopefully with the understanding that, I know with the understanding that I'm being groomed to project manage on those larger scale projects someday. Right. Um, are there any specific sort of best practices that you would recommend, Jennifer, that would apply to all types of companies? that we haven't touched on so far? I, that's such a broad question. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, one of the expressions that you hear about hiring is, you know, find the right people, get the right people on the bus, and then worry about what seats to get them into. And I, I think it's fair, considering the conversation that we're having, to do that. And I know one of my first jobs ever, it was just that. I went in to interview for one thing, they offered me another, and then it worked because they saw something in me that I didn't necessarily see during the interview process. So I think if you can afford someone that opportunity, you have a long-term loyal employee there. So you're saying you didn't actually intend to go into HR at some point? No. <laughs> but I love it. I'm thrilled I did it. <laughs> um, well, I actually be a little bit provocative and bring up something that has been mentioned to me quietly by quite a few, specifically architects, over the past year. Um, but I suspect it may apply to other people in the room as well. Um, given where we are with our economy, where we had had a huge downturn and a lot of people have downsized and now suddenly things have been looking up for the past year or two and everybody is really, really, really busy. Um, a lot of firms are having experiences where all the people or a lot of the people on their staff are getting calls from other firms quietly on the side, trying to get them to jump ship and get lured away. Uh, does anybody want to talk about experiences with that? How do you deal with that? How do you keep people in a place where they won't want to answer any of those calls? Sort of any of those things. 
think I can speak to that a little bit. Um, I think one of the things my dad taught me so well is that when you're dealing with pe you know, you're dealing with people, right? So these are these are real people. These aren't you can call them employees if you want to, but they're people. And creating a culture that supports employees and their families. Let me give you an example. So I'm not one to dig into my employees' problems or their issues, but when you find out that someone through the grapevine may lose their apartment because they had some hard times, um, it's nice to say, hey, I want to help, what can I do? And we've actually given employees, uh, we gave an employee a loan so he could stay in his home. Uh, we had an employee that really, his dream was to go to computer school and computers were his passion, but he didn't have enough money to do that. We loaned him the money to do that. So I mean, I think when you can support employees on a level that is beyond them being an employee and it's supporting them as a person, I think that's when you build something that goes beyond the day-to-day, -day and, and that's when they don't jump ship. That's, that's when you build a partner. Right, and this is assuming that this is somebody who is making We're, enough an investment of, in you and your, exactly. Sort of like, I mean, you had mentioned paying people 20% more than everybody else. That's also another good form of insurance in a way, I suspect. Um, I think if you lose someone that way, the way you're talking about, they probably, you know, something wasn't right, so they probably would have been leaving on their own at some point, but. Um, right. Yeah. Well, and with that in mind, I mean, has anybody actually had someone lured away like that? And during that process, did you learn something that you might have done differently or better with that? Or? I had a situation where we had a key employee um, and family, house, and so forth. He had some, um, some tough times. Um, with his house and so forth, but he was um, offered another job. He didn't really want to leave, but the, it was enticing because of the money, the position, the responsibility level, and it was kind of a wake-up call for us to say we had gone through some tough economic times ourselves and kind of try to hold things together. But as things, you know, we were planning on things getting better, we we decided to to work with that individual, find a way to compensate him, you know, to both of our satisfaction with more responsibility, um, more money, but in a um, a goal-oriented way, um, so he felt more a part of the company, um, which is huge, a closer connection to me as the boss, and part of something bigger than he could do individually, which I think we're all looking for at times. Um, and it's it was a huge change in um, our relationship, the dynamic of the company, his relationship with um, some of the people that answer to him, um, just significant. And we we made uh, we made note of that together recently. We just said, hey, listen, look where we are today versus where we were about a year and a half ago, and not congratulations, but more just like, I'm glad we were able to work that out in the future, let's work those things out. So for us, um, he didn't go to that other company. Um, at first, it's a kind of a hit to your ego. You think you have the best company around and everyone just wants to be with you, but that's not necessarily true. There's sometimes I don't want to be there, but you know, you, you make it work. <laughs> um, but all kidding aside, it was, a, it was a huge success. It was a good example for others in the company. We're a small company. Um, so I think it, it, it showed others that you know, hey, we, we can make this work. It's not just about the dollar or, um, but you know, that financially it hits people. They, they need to know that their, their basic needs are being satisfied, first of all, and that they're, um, they're part of a culture, as you say, which is sometimes hard to identify, but that works for all of us together. Because when the company's working for them, it's working for me, it's working for everybody, it's really working for the team. So, um, so that's my little story anyway. Thanks. Yeah, that actually, that's a really good point, and it actually, made me think of something that I think may be relevant right now for a lot of people here also, which is 
most of us who have been in business for the past you know, 10 years have obviously just gone through a very kind of deep trough. And a lot of sacrifices had to be made and things had to be cut back in many cases. And so a lot of your people probably have stuck with you very loyally through that. Uh, and now that the economy seems to be picking up and there are more projects coming in and we hope more projects being finished and build, but the company still desperately needs that revenue, what do you do to make people feel like they're being valued and rewarded for having stuck with you through those lean times and what happens when they start to get restive now that they see more stuff going on and they kind of were thinking, okay, I've been really good to you for the past X number of years. It's time to pony up a little bit. Uh, is anybody in those situations? Do you have, does anybody have uh, recommendations for that kind of? I think you need transparency in many ways. You know, your employees are looking at it and saying, we're doing so great, we're busy constantly. I'm working so much. Where's my reward? And you as the owner are looking saying, well, the books aren't where they need to be quite yet. I think, you know, whether you have a state of the union address for your team, but making sure that they understand that my intent is to get there, but we're not there yet. We're not out of the woods yet. I think that's a huge piece of it because, you know, people look at how busy they are right now, not understanding all the other pieces that go into it. So again, Communicate, 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 and share the big picture with everybody mm -hmm. so that they understand. I think. You need to know what you're bringing in, what you can give out, how much you can support. I think having open books, open communication is key. Um, and now, sort of having talked a lot about, you know, building that team and getting those people, something we alluded to briefly earlier but didn't really go into, you know, okay, well, what about in those times when an employee has reached the pinnacle of what they can do with you, but they, for either personal reasons or professional development reasons, really do need to move on? place them or can you help them with that? How do you deal with those times when a long and valued employee, you know, it really is the right time to part? Um, are there ways to handle that uh, sensitively and well? Would you like me to step out? <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, you know, uh, not to like boast that we, we have, a, you know, our firm, but we haven't really had to deal with that that much in my time at H&A. At and, um, and really, um, most people who have left our firm have uh, moved out of state, so we've been lucky. Uh, that's, I mean, which I think gets back to like a culture that, you know, that uh, David has built such a great culture and cares about everyone that we, we fortunately have not had to deal with that a lot. So I'm not the one to yeah. speak that well, much to it. But. for the room then, I think, because especially again with like small design firms, you know, if it is a one-person design firm with kind of one principle and that's the way the company needs to be, chances are some of your best assistants at some point will want to do more. And as we know, a lot of those people end up moving out and setting up their own company uh, and they become colleagues and in some cases, uh, I wouldn't say adversaries, but competitors. Um, does anybody want to share kind of ways for making that transformation 
kind of work as well and productively as possible so that you can become friendly competitors afterwards or keep those people as occasional kind of co-workers in a way? Anybody? Hire them as subcontractors to work for you. It happens many times with us. Uh -huh. A lot of uh, carpenters that have gone off and started their own companies and, and they, they work for us as subs. Uh, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, but rarely do they compete with us. It seems like they go into other types of markets. That's smart to have them as a consultant. Yeah. I'm thinking of one scenario we did right before I came on to H&A. I've been there for 10 years. Uh, an architect had to leave because of a child that just needed more attention at home. Um, but we actually brought her back when we had a, a, a situation where we didn't really have an architect to work on that, and we, we really wanted to keep that relationship and work with her again. So that is a great way to do it. We, we actually brought her back on for a, just project specific. And it worked great. That's a great thing. <laughs> We're running you around, John. I wanted to answer that specifically because we are, you know, I'm the principal designer and then we have this great team. And um, I had a fantastic um, executive assistant for five years and she met somebody in Boston. She was single and wanted to move. Great for her, bad for me. And um, it took us, I would say, uh, a good two years to, to find somebody who was of the same caliber and quality, who understood the culture, who had the professionalism and so on and so forth and maturity. Um, so it was painful uh, for those two years, but it was worth the wait. You know, it was kind of, it was, it was tough, but we endured it until we uh, made sure we found the right person. But in the meantime, we have supported that person. We stay in contact. I've gone to see her showroom. Um, we, you know, we've, I've been like a mentor for her. We talk back and forth. We share resources, you know, as long as she stays out of my area. But you know, um, all joking aside, though, um, we do have a non-compete agreement within a certain mile radius because um, we're dealing with creative people, let's face it. So, um, but we have remained really good uh, business associates and colleagues and still support her. But for our firm, it was painful to find someone of the same caliber and, uh, and the training and so on and so forth. But we withstood the pain and now we have somebody, which is really great. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, especially in a, an industry that is sort of as small and tight-knit as ours, keeping that collegiality, if you can possibly do it, I think is very important. Uh, because these are people who, if they stay in this area and they're working here, you will be running into at Bragby, or you'll be running into at an ASID meeting, or at one of these. And it's not really in anybody's interest to be, to have bad relationships, I think. And so if, are there, maybe Jennifer, are, do you have, have you had this happen with any of the people you've worked with? Are there ways of helping to make sure that both parties can stay um, on good terms with one another? Um, a lot of what I've seen before, I have a current client and they're, um, kind of a boutique organization within their industry, but she's a part of all of the networking events, um, sits on several boards. So she has this great relationship where if she has someone who's ready to move on, she makes the phone call to one of her competitors, but one of, someone who she works well with and will send one of her people on to that person. But then maybe she has something more senior so she can call that person and there's kind of an exchange. And yes, you get a very, I guess, inbred 
community there <laughs> because you're constantly cycling through. But in the end, you know, they're fortunate because they don't have huge vacancies and they're getting referrals from people they trust because they're within the network. Gets us back to where we started about the importance of referrals and how those tend to work out uh, because they're a known quantity. Um, I, at this point, I would just like to ask, are there thoughts or questions that anybody came in with that you really desperately want to know something about that we haven't actually touched on yet? The other side of these great employees, the ones that aren't great, and how hard it is as a business owner to move swiftly and make good decisions. And it's, it's hard when you're a personable type of organization. And um, that's a struggle. So I guess hearing from our experts about um, that side of the coin, the other okay. side. OK. Anybody who wants to jump on that one? Uh, I can speak to it because I think in preparation, or recently I, I was reading an article and it talked about what's called the Whelmers. So you've got your exemplary employees that do a fantastic job. I mean, that's great. Then you've got your very poor performers that are easy to, to identify because they're such poor performers, but you've got this middle ground, and they're the Whelmers. And, and what do you do about them? You know, they're kind of doing an okay job, but they're not doing a great job. And it, it puts you in this position where how long, how much time do I give this? And I think you have to constantly evaluate you know, are they part of our team? Are they in, in the picture for the long run? And how much time do I want to invest? And how much money do I want to spend in this process? <laughs> and it's a balancing act. And I think, you know, the one year mark uh, sometimes is much too long. But that, that's a, for us, that's a critical. I mean, three months is important, you know. But some of these Whelmers, they just kind of keep you going, you know. It's almost, they're almost deceiving because they, they're so good at being like, oh, this is great. I love it here. And they say all the right things, but they're not performing. And the feedback is mixed. So I think the review process, which I don't know if we spoke about, measuring, right? So you're setting an expectation. Part of maybe Paul even touched on it. What are the expectations of your business? Where are they supposed to be? Where do you expect them to be in three months, six months, a year? Are they there? And we have a, a sales in the sales process, if they're not for the first six months, their expectation is to do this. And we have an option to keep them on if they're not, but they know about it. In six months, hey, listen, we're keeping you on board. You know, your, your, your attitude's great, but you're not making the number. So we're going to sit down in two months and see how you're doing. We're gonna, and then we, at that point, we have a, can make a decision if we continue or not. But setting expectation, I think, is the key. I think one of the challenges with that is if you're in a, a measurable you're in sales, for example, yes. it's easy to measure someone's performance, where sure. in the more of the creative side, or mm. maybe <laughs> even in the craft side, it's, sure. it's a less tangible thing to measure performance. You know when someone's great, but those people in the middle ground, it can be more challenging. Mm. So. No doubt. Yeah, I think, that's, I think it really comes back to the review process. You really are responsible for letting someone know how they're doing. And I think getting feedback from the people they're working with um, because sales is easy to tell, right? You're trying to hit these numbers, but, um, but asking teammates and, and making sure that that review process um, is really, you do have formality to it, um, and, and, and that's where people have, the, that's where you have the opportunity, and it, and it can be uncomfortable. I think you have to be 
you know, some things maybe aren't addressed because someone's uncomfortable talking about things. You really, you can't be. You need to, you need to be straightforward and ha have an open line of communication. And so that's really, if, if that review process is, is kept up with, and that's the opportunity to kind of nip it in the bud. Not, not only talking to fellow uh, associates, but also their clients, yeah. you find is a great resource. Tell me about your experience with Sue in our showroom. What, tell me what it was like for you. And that's helpful too, because that's almost, you know, we can wear these rosy glasses or we can see what we want to see or they put on a, a face to us, but the clients are the ones that are the most important, so. Actually something, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was gonna say, I think the other side is you can, you can make almost everything measurable and not by, you know, are they good, are they great, are they poor. You hired someone to do a job. This is the job, you know what you need from them in that job. So are they doing it or aren't they? That's your measure right there. And if you've given them every opportunity to do it, if you've given them the tools and resources that they need and they're still not doing it, that's your measure. They're not doing it. And it's, you know, looking at that way, it sounds awful in many ways because it's so cut and dry. But when you're dealing with a situation like that, that person can do more harm than good if you're not actively managing it. And that actually touches on something we did talk about in our call last week, which is this whole review process and evaluation thing. Particularly for very, very busy people in small firms, it's really, really easy to put off. Because it's like, well, I sort of know how it's going, and I've got all this other stuff, and so we'll just do that eventually. Um, but it's clear, I think, from what everybody has said here, that the reviews really need to happen, and it is worth your time to make the investment of time and effort to do that regularly and as Matthew pointed out, on time. Because yeah. <laughs> if you tell people you're gonna do it and then you don't, there are a lot of kind of disappointed expectations in a way. Sometimes you just like to have that direction to know what you're working towards. But I think, you know, with the Wilmers, the tendency to, or the problem employees sometimes is to handle those situations in a sort of casual situation to make it feel approachable for them. And I think that that's where a lot of the trouble comes in. So that's back to the benefit of having that review, the formality of it, because I feel like if you really engage them in a way that is head on and you talk about this is an issue and you really need to resolve it, then you put it out there and then it does become quantifiable or measurable. But without that, if it's sort of just, you know, by the coffee machine and said, oh, you're, you're kind of a jerk yesterday, that, that doesn't really get you anywhere. So <laughs> it's not, and it's really a hard thing to do because part of our industry is informal and it's a casual business in a lot of ways too. So on our side of the table. Well, now just to kind of round things up, because we're actually about to run out of time, I would just like to ask everybody up here at the table, what would be your primary takeaway from tonight? I, I think uh, that the two things that we've talked about a lot is communication and um, building a culture that um, everyone uh, wants to come to work every day, so culture and, and communication. I think the importance of creating a culture where everyone feels like they have an individual contribution is really important. I think because you should be working towards creating a place where you want to come to work every day, but also working for a place that expects that of you, that you do more than just come in and do the 10 things that were on your job description. So trying to be an individual contributor is really important. Uh, I would say that employees are people first. and. The way that you treat your employees will be the way that they treat your customers. So treat them the way that you expect them to handle those who come through your door or work with you. Engage your team. You know, you have to actively engage them each and every day. 
so they feel like they're a part of it. They want to be a part of something bigger, and it's up to you to show them that they are part of it. Well, I would very much love to thank Kate and Matthew and Jason and Jennifer.